Thank you, James, for your prayer and for asking the Lord to see our compliance with their rules and regulations in this lockdown. The Bible says, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. What's hard to understand about that? Submit yourself to every ordinance of man. How many are accepted? Submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man. The Lord knows it's men. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Submit. That's the lesson of the Bible. And the Lord has saved us from days of rebellion to believe that verse. Now let me add to it. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Amen. The reason we do it is to fear the Lord. If we don't do it, we do not fear the Lord because we do not properly recognize that every authority has been ordained by Him and every idea they come up with as a rule or a regulation has been ordained by Him. Amen. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. This is a gift we're giving to the Lord. Let's do it well. Let's do it cheerfully. If you're afraid of things, it means you don't have any faith. Faith and fear don't go together in little tiny things like we're dealing with. Trust the Lord. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Open your Bible with me to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. 65 was similar enough to it, though more difficult than 66, possibly for you to see that it is definitely the New Testament era of Jesus Christ that's under consideration. I hope you understand the great ditches that are on both sides that we just drove between in the first service. We are not dispensationalists. There is nothing in Isaiah 65 about some future fantasy Jewish millennium on earth. God is through dealing with the Jews as a separate and individual people. He has united Jews and Gentiles together, killed the vast majority of the Jews, only elected a small remnant, and added to them millions and millions of Gentiles. There's nothing in Isaiah 65 for some little future fantasy land that we used to be taught by those who say the number one rule of Bible interpretation when it comes to the prophets is to interpret them literally. They, may, they say that is the number one rule when the Bible says that should be about the last rule because the prophets use similitudes. And so when they look at the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, all they can picture is it a gray wolf. And how old is the lamb? And they can only think in material, physical, animal terms instead of the change in character. Now, I got several of you to laugh with me. If I were to keep going and telling zoo stories, maybe I would get all of you to laugh with me, and then I would say, are you able to do the same thing with verse 20? 65. Isaiah 65, 20. Are you? Okay. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Once you know the context, and once you see one or two that are simpler, then the harder ones you say, well, how should I view that? Well, everybody wants to live a long life. Are they all going to cut off at 100? I just need to know, in this millennium that you've created, when the, everybody's going to live to be 100, do they die on their birthday? Since you've made it literal. And then, brethren, I want to tell you, John Owen, I respect. 
I respect him. But not that much, because I respect this a whole lot more. And in 2 Peter 3, it is so clear the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished, and the world that now is, is reserved in store of judgment of fire, which is the fervent heat that melts the elements. So we know that is literal, and this is spiritual. Let's go to 66, and let's go through it. Isaiah chapter 66, two great events occurred along with and after Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish nation was destroyed, and the church was prospered and expanded greatly. The first lesson of this chapter, and there are six in this chapter, are verses 1 through 4. And it was God's condemnation and indictment of Jewish trust in ceremonial religion. I've heard in prayer today, reference made to Jeremiah 7, it was by our brother David, when he used the words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, three times, the temple of the Lord are these. The Jews thought, since we have the house of God's worship on earth, we can live any way we want and the Lord's going to deliver us anyway. And he goes on to mock that idea in Jeremiah 7, but we have it here in the first four verses. Here I go, Isaiah 66, the first four verses. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb is as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delighteth in their abominations. I also will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear. But they did evil before mine eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. Quickly, what is a temple being referred to in 66.1? If there's a new heavens and a new earth, is this the third or the fourth Jewish temple that you are going to enlighten us on? The reason I'm bringing it up is we had the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 65, and now we've got to deal with the temple, and then we're going to read about the new heavens and the new earth again. So what temple was it? Since, Nebuch since Solomon's had been leveled to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar, this is Zerubbabel's temple. And it was the Jewish idea that we have Abraham to our father and we have the great temple of God's worship on earth. We're all set. And here's what the Lord has to say about that. He says it's totally wrong. I've created the earth and the heavens. The heavens are my throne. The earth is my footstool. What do you think you're going to build me that's suitable for me? Stephen quoted this in Acts chapter 7, verses 49 and 50, because there's no house that can fit the Lord. Paul used it in Acts chapter 17 when he told the Greeks, why do you people think that God dwells in temples made with hands? It's an absurd thought. 
He gives life and breath to all of us, and you're going to build him some little doghouse and call it a temple and confine him to it and think that he's honored and worshipped inside it? It doesn't make any sense. So that's what verse 1 means. For all those things hath mine hand made. You can't build me anything that I didn't already create the materials for it. So what are you giving me? And I created these things a long time ago, so you're not bringing me anything new. So what kind of worship is it? It doesn't mean anything to me. This is the man that I will look to. He doesn't have to go to a building. He doesn't have to talk about Abraham. He just needs to have a poor and contrite. That means a desperate and repentant spirit toward the Lord that without him we're nothing, and without his grace we won't make it. I want that man to come to me trembling at my word, that what he reads in there he believes is true, and the threats are serious, and that he wants to obey and please me because he loves me and fears me. That man I'm ready for. That man is practicing real worship. It doesn't need a temple. Brethren, let's be like that. Let's be the least and the worst. Let's be sinners before God. Let's beg Him to have mercy upon us. Let's tremble at His Word. Let's appreciate everything that is written down in Scripture so that we fit into the second half of verse 2. Now, brethren, you have come today. You 105 have come today, and we have another 100 sitting at home. And I hope they're viewing this. But I don't really care, because my God's going to take care of them if they're not. That's between them and God. I have better things to do than to chase down scorners and fools that don't care about the worship of God. You will eventually be exposed and will throw you out of this church. But for those of you that are here, and for those of you that are at home, and for those of you that will be here in the future, let me remind you that the things I say out of this pulpit, though severe and harsh at times, are based on the Word of God. You're coming here and, and sitting in a chair and warming some foam rubber is an abomination to God. Your prayer is an abomination. Every prayer you offer at home is an abomination if you do anything in your life that is your way of doing things instead of God's way of doing things. Because that is what we have here. In the last part of verse 3, they have chosen their own ways, and there the soul delighteth in their abominations. Those abominations don't have to be idolatry. Those abominations are doing things your way instead of God's way. Then your attendance means nothing, because all the ordinances mean nothing. And here's how bad it is. If you remember the book of Proverbs, and I have tried to teach it to you now for 15 years, the prayer of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And on and on are statements like that. That is an axiom of the Word of God. The prayer of a man can become an abomination when he doesn't obey. When he doesn't obey. So here's how the Lord wants to get across to you. Those of you that are trusting in the temple, those of you that are trusting in ceremonial worship, those of you that are trusting because you attend church, you're a Christian. Non-Christians attend church. Don't you see in Matthew chapter 22 that the king was going to come into that marriage feast and he was going to walk up to a man without a garment on and say, hey, friend, where's your wedding garment? And the friend was going to be speechless because those that go out into the highways and invite men to come in like pastors, they get good and bad guests. And the angels will make the difference in the end if we don't make the difference before that 
by seeing your fruits expose you in our church. Here's what the Lord has to say about it. Those of you that are trusting a temple and ceremonial worship, when you kill an ox, which I know is a significant expense for you, but when you kill an ox, you might as well have murdered a man because that's how I receive your worship. Your killing of an ox, your sacrificing of the most expensive thing that you could give from your farm. They didn't have John Deere tractors with PTOs. When you kill an ox, it's as if you murdered a man. When you sacrifice a lamb, why don't you go ahead and cut off a dog's head? And for those of you that don't understand the animal kingdom of this world, God hates dogs. So this was the worst thing that he can possibly bring up. It goes right along with pig's blood in the next clause. He considers dogs vile animals just like pigs, and I'll try to stop it right there. I'd like to go for 10 minutes on that subject, but I won't. But I want you, I, I got to explain to you what God intends by bringing a dog into this verse. He that sacrificeth a lamb, and since God hates dogs in this kind of a context for sure, he doesn't think they're man's best friend. Uh, that I cannot find in the Bible, but I can find a whole lot in the Bible that's opposite of that. As if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation, that's a drink offering, as if he offered swine's blood. You know, here's someone comes in and brings their best wine from a vintage, and they offer it to the Lord, but the Lord says you might as well do pig's blood. He that burneth incense, as if he blessed an idol. I didn't say this stuff. I just love the God that did. I don't know why he ever called me to preach his word, but I love every word he gave me to preach, including this one. When we think that attendance means something to God, your prayers become an abomination because you're trusting in the wrong thing. What he wants is a humble, broken, contrite, repentant spirit that trembles at God's word. And when, when you hear God's word on any subject, no matter how personal, no matter how dear, no matter what you might have to change, no matter that you might have to humble yourself to your spouse to do it right, you tremble about it and you do it. There are those that creep into churches, all churches, that when they hear God's word, they decide what they're going to do and they decide what they're not going to do because they choose their own abominations. Any man's thought that is different from God's word and his abomination, that's enough of the practical application and lesson for us, but it should sober all of us all the time. God doesn't care about outward worship when it is not preceded by a prepared heart that loves him and is devoted to him without that ceremonial worship. We care about our ordinances. We care about our attendance. But that doesn't mean any... God wants changed lives. God wants changed hearts and humble hearts. And so the Jews were guilty of this. That's why Jeremiah 7 was one of the possible chapters you could read last night. They put their trust in the temple. You know, the apostles and Jesus, in Matthew chapter 24, in the first few verses of the chapter, are walking around the temple admiring the stones. It was one of the most impressive buildings on earth at that time. And they were telling, Lord, look at, you know, these are, these are guys used to a rowboat or a little fishing vessel, sailing vessel, back in the Sea of Galilee, and here they are in the big city. And they're looking at these massive stones Herod had added to Zerubbabel's temple in significant measure. And so it was a beautiful building, and these stones were huge, and they were beautiful. 
I'm not going to tell you stories that are outside the Bible. So I'm going to stop right there because I want to. About how beautiful the temple was by eyewitnesses of it that wrote about it. Historians. They put their trust in it and the apostles said, Lord, look at these. And what was the Lord's answer? There isn't going to be two of these still attached to each other when I get done with it before this generation is gone. That's what the rest of Matthew 24 is about. And the Romans came and tore it apart. And they, the Romans found out that all the gold that was covering all these massive stones had melted and run in between the stones. What does that do to a man who's only paid a soldier's wage? They tore those stones apart to get to the gold that had run in between them. That's a little off track, but 70 AD is going to come up in just a minute. So what does God say? You chose, I love his play on words, through, I, every word of God. The last sentence of verse 3, they're at the bottom of verse 3, it's a long verse. They have chosen their own ways. Verse 4, I also will choose their delusions, and I will bring their fears upon them, because when I offered them truth, they didn't receive it. I hope you're going to see very close similarities between 65 and 66. We already have right here. They rejected the offering that I, I stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. Here they are rebellious. They want to do things their way and think that because they come into this temple, which is one of the beauties of the earth, that God's going to be with them and bless them. No. He thinks that, you know, they coughed up a lot of money for an ox. To bring an ox? That's like a tractor. They should have just murdered someone because it's an abomination. Totally consistent with Solomon and what he wrote in the book of Proverbs. Let's go to verse 5. Verse 5 down to verse 6. It's short. God's vengeance on Jews harming his elect. Verses 5 and 6. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Those men trembling at his word are God's elect. And they're up in verse 2. And so God has a special message for them. For those of you that are my, my elect, and you tremble at my word, you care about my preachers, you care about what they preach, hear the word of the Lord. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my namesake, said, let the Lord be glorified. But he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. Amen. What's it going to be like? How's he going to appear? How's he going to appear? A voice of noise from the city. A voice from the temple. A voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. Do you know what kind of shouting went on in the city of Jerusalem? And I'm not even going to refer to the eyewitness accounts that were written down by historians of men under the control of the Spirit of God or the devil that ran through that city screaming out things that God's judgment had fallen on Jerusalem. I don't need to go there. The fact that it slipped out of my mouth when I said I wasn't going to go there, that's just too bad. So you got a little bit of it. This is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, when the Roman soldiers, after their months of siege, had finally broken through and got into that city. Do you know what kind of a roar went up? The roar of the Romans and the roar, the roar of the Jews, because they were about to be slaughtered. Amen. And why did this all happen? Because they threw out the man born blind and said, let the Lord be magnified. Let the Lord be glorified. 
We did that in the name of the Lord. We love the Lord. We fear the Lord. You know, some of the greatest enemies of Christians have been the most religious, conservative religious re religiosity in the world. Do you know what it was like to die as a martyr? With men standing there with Scripture and saying they were doing it in the name of Jesus? There's one defender for them, and that's Jesus himself. Because they have another Jesus, and those martyrs died with the true Jesus, and they believed on him, and the true Jesus came back. Did the, did the true Jesus look up the man born blind twice? Amen. Once in John 9 at the end, and once in the destruction of Jerusalem? <laughs> that's speculation on the second part. Do you like, some of you love the man born blind. Did Jesus go find him again that day after he had been cast out? Isn't that comforting? So the Lord was embracing and comforting someone that had been cast out by the religious leaders of his city. Praise the Lord. That's what this is teaching. That the elect, those that tremble at God's word, having been thrown out of temple worship. Do we read that through John in other places as well? that those who confessed Jesus Christ and professed him that Jesus of Nazareth was God's son could not worship in the synagogues or in the temple. They were thrown out of the worship and they did it in the name of God. And so this is a prophecy of it. The Lord shall appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. And their enemies were all destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem, which the prophets from Moses all the way through the New Testament had prophesied would come to pass. The Apostle Paul said, these people are, fro are forward to all, contrary to all men. This is a forward generation. Jesus called it a devil-possessed generation. And the wrath of God has come upon them to the uttermost. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16. Throughout the Bible, ye that tremble at his word, your brethren, the other Jews of your nation that hated you, you were poor and broken in spirit, repentant. You love my word. You want to keep it. You know you're a sinner. You beg for forgiveness. And you have brethren among the Jewish state that threw you out and said they were doing it. In the name of the Lord, let him be glorified. I will come to your rescue. And it will be dramatic. They will be ashamed. And you will be joyful. And he did that. He burned them to the ground and saved the Christians of that generation alive. A voice of noise from the city. A voice from the temple. I want to remind you again. In 65, you may have wondered, how do you know it's the gospel era of the New Testament? By reading the two chapters together because God told me they go together by their terminology. We have a temple. We have a city. There wasn't one after 70 AD. This is the gospel era of the heavenly Jerusalem that replaced the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Mount Zion that replaced the earthly Mount Zion and Jesus Christ on the throne of glory that replaced Herod the Great or anyone else that you could raise to me. The son of David was on his throne. And so this is, a, this is 70 AD in a very short graphic blast of what was going to come on that city. An event would take place that Jesus would appear and he said, not all of you standing here shall taste of death till they see the Son of Man 
coming in his kingdom. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three said that. There'll be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death. That means most everyone that was in the presence of Jesus died, but some were still alive, and 40 years would cover that. And he came in 70 AD. Not visibly, but he came through the Roman armies, and it was so obvious that it was the judgment of God for what they had done to the Son of God. That the Christians could rejoice while the wicked Jews were ashamed. There's the destruction of Jerusalem in one quick little verse. A voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. What great cataclysmic event took place that shattered the temple and the city at the same time and that took care of the adversaries of the Lord? I read it to you from Hebrews 10. The destruction of Jerusalem. Let's get to the next verses. Okay, with that state, with the Jewish state out of the way, the church explodes. The church explodes. Now, he can't say two things simultaneously, but these two things are going on like this. I mean, the prophets were ordained 40 years in front of the destruction of Jerusalem and sent out by Jesus Christ. But the prophet is going to bounce back and forth. Back and forth. He throws out one verse about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now he describes the explosive nature of the church growth that took place, but that started at Pentecost. Are you with me? So he goes, he goes back and forth because he can't say two things at the same time. So he says a little bit about the destruction of Jerusalem in verse 6. Then he's going to say some about the explosive growth of the church. Then he's going to say some more about the destruction of Jerusalem and the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I read to you verses 7 through 14. This is the birth and prosperity of the gospel church. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed... She brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith thy God? Rejoice, with, rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck, ye shall be born upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when ye see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb. And the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. This chapter is pulling the two events together. The, explos the explosion of the church in size with the Gentiles coming to it and the destruction of the Jewish nation with the ruin of the city and the temple in 70 AD. Do you see them both there at the end in verse 14? Was verse 7 a little different than verse 6? Do you think my division into lessons is right once in a while? 
Can you tell the difference between six and seven? One's a birth and one's the wreck of a city in a temple with a lot of noise. What woman wants a lot of noise when she's in labor? Oh, this woman didn't have any labor. Did you notice that? That's why I was looking at you, sister. She works in labor and delivery. Labor and delivery. But in this explosive growth of the Jewish church, there was only delivery. There was no labor. I hope you saw that. I'm not going to go through these verses. It's, it's just wonderful to, to look at them. This is the explosive growth of the church. This is like Isaiah 54, where I called it the explosive growth of the Jewish church. And the Lord's now referring to the church as a woman giving birth to all these children. And she's, she's at it. Is there another example in the Bible of a woman, of women that gave birth so quickly it caused problems? Is it the first couple chapters of Exodus where the Israelite women were lively on the stools? I tried to get my wife on a stool one time during a, a delivery and she was lively. She told me to don't touch her again because she did not want to be bothered in transition. I'm sorry about that. When she was in her right mind, she had asked me to put her on a stool so she could, so she could do it the Bible way. Well, when it got time, that's transition. And women aren't in their right minds in transition. And so I got told where to get off. Where to get off the bus. Look at these. These verses are just wonderful. The, the Lord's talking about when I make a commitment, and I've decided in 65.1 that I'm going to choose Gentiles to be my church, and I'm going to get rid of these Jews. When I commit to a birth, it is going to happen, and it's going to happen right now. And there's going to be a lot of kids. And so he says that in verse 9. It's him talking. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth? Do you think I'm going to get slowed down in this because she's got some cervix that won't dilate? That was a little much. <laughs> Saith the Lord, shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb? Here's a woman in labor and she's locked down. She's inspected by a midwife. Not even one. What? I'm always two. No, it's locked up. You know, that's terrible news, but there's no such thing with the growth of the church. Though, that, though the city of Jerusalem and the temple and what appeared to be the worship of God on earth was ended with the destruction of Jerusalem, a few men escaped out of that city and went to the world and the church was born and it grew and it grew and it grew. And that's what these verses are about. So we should rejoice with Jerusalem in verse 10. These are verses just like we had in, verse, in chapter 65 and, and verse 11. That ye may suck and be satisfied and delighted with the abundance of her glory. When I preached to you Isaiah chapters 60, 61 and 62, they were all about the glory of the Jewish church. All about the glory of the... Here's the glory of the Jewish church. Take advantage of it. Suck on the breast of that mommy who's given birth to you. She's got everything the church needs. This is, these are similitudes. Should we get literal here, dispensationalist? Okay. Let's leave it alone. Once you start down the road in a prophecy of being literal, you are in serious trouble. Don't do it. Don't do it. I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. The church exploded. 
the trips of Paul, there were there were churches in every city. The island of Crete, where Titus was left. There were churches, plural, on that island. And so those verses are describing that. And when ye see this, when you see this happen, Jerusalem wrecked and the church explode in growth, your heart shall rejoice. This is verse 14. Your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like an herb. And the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. Do you know how we've had, behold, the servant will eat, the wicked will not. The servant will drink, the wicked will not. This contrast of the elect versus the reprobates is going to be incredibly visible in 70 AD. If you read Malachi 4 last night, the first three verses, I am going to come and burn this nation up, but the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in His wings for you, and you that the Son of Righteousness rose to heal, you will walk on the wicked and they will be ashes under your feet. Perfect fulfillment of this. Could more be said? Yes. Verses 15 through 18. Furious vengeance on the wicked. I said he, he mentions the destruction of Jerusalem in 6. Then he mentions the explosion of the church in 7 through 14. Here he goes back to his judgment of the wicked in verses 15 through 18. For behold, the Lord will come. Now he's, where's the transition? Do you remember in English when you were writing a paper and you went from one point to the next or one paragraph to the next, you needed some transitional words? The transitional words are at the end of verse 14, his indignation toward his enemies. For, and here's the detailed explanation, for behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination in the mouse shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. I will display my glory on what I do to my enemies and what I do to those that are my elect. And this, this is a description of 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. What would he do in, Mal in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 7? What will he do to those wicked men? He will destroy those wicked men and burn up their city. The same with Malachi. What did John the Baptist preach? What was, what was his opening line to the Pharisees? He's going to baptize you with fire. And the fan is in his hand. And he's going to gather the wheat into his garner, the elect right here, and he's going to burn up the chaff with what kind of fire? I need your help, or we're not going to be able to finish today. Unquenchable fire. Because verse 24 is going to have unquenchable fire, and the dispensationalists and futurists want to run out to that being the lake of fire in some day in the future. But if, we had, if they had read this book from the very first chapter, they would know that unquenchable fire is temporary, earthly judgment. That's just a word for it. That it is not going to stop burning until it burns everything that it was intended to burn. That's unquenchable fire. Lord, thank... Yes. Brethren, this is, this, is, this is relative. 
Thank you, Lord, for making it easy. Do you know what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 8? It says that it is all plain to him that understandeth. Well, how do we get that understanding? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Do not let us ever veer off in this church, but let us beg God to open up the word and show wondrous things to us out of his law, because if he doesn't, we won't see anything. But when he does, we can be little children in a candy store as the Lord shows us new things. Have you checked out this bin, Jonathan? How about this one? Tap on my shoulder in my office. I have one witness. Why does something come to the mind of a 63-year-old that's totally out of nowhere? I just jump up and run and tell Sherry that the Lord just tapped me on the shoulder and showed me something else. We want to understand these chapters and, and see these lessons and see this prophecy because you know who the real beneficiary is of this prophecy? We are. We get to look back and see the glory of God in, on display in the ruin of Jerusalem and in the growth of the New Testament church. By fire and sword, what did the Romans use? Fire and sword. Did they build ramps? Sure. Is that described in the Bible? Yes. Then the Lord mocks their religion. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens, these are the holier-than-thou people. These are the ones that are worshiping God their own way. They'll swear... They'll swear by the gold of the temple, but they won't swear by the temple or the God of the temple. Amazing things these Jews did. And so the prophet Isaiah, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is lumping them all into one verse. And the key word of verse 17 is together. Because there's different kinds of worshipers here, but they're all going to be consumed together. And so it's not just one kind of worshiper that does all those things. It's different kinds of worshipers. Did the Jews sanctify themselves and think that they were holier than thou? That's what the word sanctify means, to make something holy. And so they're all going to be destroyed together, and these are the ones that were eating soup, mouse soup, eating swine's flesh and the abomination in the mouse shall be consumed together. Because remember, it was broth back over there in Isaiah 65, and verse 4, which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. So this is God just lumping the Jews together and mocking them by ridiculous aspects of religious worship and some of the things that they were doing. I know their works and their thoughts. It shall come that I will gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. The Roman army. Rome was an empire. Rome was an empire that stretched from... Afghanistan to England. And so there were men of all kinds of nations in that empire. That's why it was called an empire. And they were there and they were part of it. And they got to see the glory of God. And I want to remind you about something. Our study of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is entitled The Witness of 70 AD. Why is it entitled that? Because in the preparation of it, I was overcome by the value of the study to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ over his enemies and in the salvation of his people and in the fulfillment of scripture. Because Jesus said, when giving a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, he said, this gospel, in the middle of describing the ruin of Jerusalem, Matthew 24, verse 14, this gospel shall be preached in all the world for a witness, then shall the end come. The whole world will know that Jesus 
had prophesied the ruin of that city and then did it in terms of which numerically were unprecedented and the suffering and the sorrow in that place. Verse 19. The calling of the Gentiles. Verses 19 through 21. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations. There was an ensign set up. There was a sign. There was a standard. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape. So not every Jew was burned up in Jerusalem. And I will send them to the nations, to Tarshish, Paul, Lud, to draw the bow. That's what they were known for there, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord out of all nations upon horses and in chariots and in litters and upon mules and upon swift beasts to my holy mountain Jerusalem, saith the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take of them for priests and for Levites, saith the Lord. Those three verses. This is the explosion of the New Testament church with Jews escaping the destruction of Jerusalem, going into the world and preaching the gospel and bringing nations and, and Gentiles flowing like a stream, as we had back in verse 12, and they would bring the scattered Jews together and scattered Jews that were God's elect and Gentiles that were God's elect would come together and the Gentiles would take great, personal, meticulous, speedy care of them. That's why the listing of all those animals that, that are beasts of burden to carry the Jews did the Gentiles raise money to keep the Christian churches of the Jews going in Judah, in famine, and in persecution? Yes, they did. And we've already run into that numerous times. It's just worded a little bit different right here, but that's what it's about. Some of the Jews will escape and be preachers to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will return the favor. Is that taught in the, Bible, in the New Testament? That since we have received from the Jews spiritual things, is it a problem that we give them carnal things, not ministry, Jew, Jew-Gentile right. transaction, relationship. Yes, it is taught. So Jews would go out and preach the gospel and show the fame and glory of God to Gentiles that had never heard it like that. Then the Gentiles would return the favor by assisting all converted and elect Jews to join together in one thriving church. And the Lord just wants to add this little tiny thing. Out of those Gentiles, I will also get me some priests and Levites. Now, who wants to be literal with that part? Being a Levite was by birth. But this isn't a Levite by birth. This is a Levite by God's choice. And priests were only a select part of the Levites. They had to be a descendant of Aaron. And yet, there were going to be Gentile priests. And we come to the New Testament, Revelation 1.6 made us kings and priests unto our God. 5.9, kings and priests unto our God. The explosion of the church. And Isaiah's running out of space. He's only got three verses left. He's only got three verses left out of 1,281. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which is made up of converted Jews and converted Gentiles that survive the destruction of Jerusalem, for as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another 
and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. That is 70 A.D. That is the conversion of the church. That's the new heavens and the new earth in spiritual terms. Back there in verse 20, that's not literal. Where are we going to find all those animals? Back there in verse 20, and come to the holy mountain. What holy mountain? The Zion which is above. The son of David reigns up there on Mount Zion in the new Jerusalem. And, and we're part of that church. And it's the fulfillment of this prophecy and many more like it. But the last three verses, they're called new heavens and the new earth. And it should be clearer for you by its context that the Lord's going to make new priests and Levites because you know that is a New Testament blessing of the gospel era of Jesus Christ that he would make us kings and priests. Priests came from the tribe of Levi. Kings came from the tribe of Judah. The two never mixed before in the history of the nation of Israel, but in the church of Jesus Christ, we are from Judah and we are from Levi and we're kings and priests to God. And we're a new royal priesthood and a holy nation by Jews and Gentiles coming together. So it can be said to Gentiles, it can be said to Jews, like it is in 1 Peter chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And that is what these verses are telling us. And he's wrapping things up and he comes to the end. And let me just say it briefly because I am past my time. It is not brief in my outline. And this outline will be published soon. Verse 24 is what Malachi chapter 4, if you would have read Malachi 4 last night, the first three verses, they shall be ashes under your feet. And the last three verses of chapter 3, when God makes a difference, he makes up his jewels by his elect and he burns up the rest and the jewels walk on the reprobates and the burned up Jews as ashes under their feet when Jesus Christ rises with healing in his wings. It's all there. John the Baptist came and started it off by saying, listen, why have you come out here to my baptism, you Pharisees? You generation of vipers. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And there's the wrath. And that's a verse the Jews don't like. So Isaiah, along with Lamentations, and along with Ecclesiastes, and along with Malachi, it, among many versions of the Masoretes, does not have the last verse because they don't like it, and I don't blame them. For being the reprobates that they are, they wouldn't want to read something like this. Do you want to hear what Malachi 4, 6 sounds like? He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So they double the previous verse. But we love this verse because this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness and then shall the end come. The end of what? The end of the Jewish state, the city of Jerusalem and the temple that was in that city. And I will tear that thing down and there won't be two stones left to each other. And you'll be... This is a similitude. Or do you want me to have a funeral home that has 1.1 million caskets in it and we line up and pass by? How long do carcasses last? When they're killed outside and the birds can eat them? 24 is a similitude. You're going to be able to see the great difference. It's, it's the same thing as verse 14. The hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. 
the Gentiles and Jews are going to be worshiping together. Verse 23 doesn't have anything to do with New Testament people keeping the Sabbath. Isaiah is preaching to an audience of Jews in 600 B.C. He's going to use Sabbath and he's going to use moons to describe their monthly lunar calendar and to describe their weekly worship of God. But all we have to do is come into the New Testament to find out that the moons have been put away and the Sabbath days have been put away. And so when a Seventh-day Adventist tries to lead you here, you should know the answer. I'm a New Testament Christian, and if you would like to be one, I'll introduce you to my pastor and he'll baptize you. That's what you should say, because you can't be a Christian and a Sabbatarian at the same time, because you're living in the Old Testament. You say, but it uses the word Sabbath, and the Gentiles are going to be keep... How else is Isaiah going to explain it to 600 B.C. Jews? It doesn't bother me, especially when the New Testament makes it so plain that the Sabbath has been put away. You say, what about the worm? Wait a minute. Did you really ask me that? Did you really ask? What about the worms? The worm dieth not, just keeps right on eating the corpses. Really? Are we at chapter 66? Does 66 come before or after 14? Does it come after 14? 14 already taught us about worms on the king of Babylon's corpse. You say, what about unquenchable fire? That was in chapter 1. That was in chapter 1. And John preached in Matthew chapter 3. Do you know what unquenchable fire means? It's not hellfire. Not in this context. It's fire that burns until it destroys everything that it was intended to burn. And so that is what Isaiah 66 and 24 ends with. And that's how it ends. You know, the book of Jonah ends with, and much cattle. Sometimes books end a little differently than we might think. But this ends with a judgment upon the people that Isaiah was sent to. And he wrote this. And we do not know what role this verse and 65.1 had in him being sawn asunder, or if he was sawn asunder. But brethren, this is not unhappiness for us. This isn't fear for us. What should we do with this? What did it say over here in verse 10? Rejoice ye with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all ye that love her. For thus saith the Lord, I'm going to extend peace to her. The Gentiles like a flowing stream. Let us rejoice with the church. The church exploded. God came down on this planet and chose out Gentiles, pushed his Jews aside, except for a few elect ones, put them in a church, brought them to the birth, and it exploded without labor or travail. There were just children popping out left and right. And she didn't, have, she didn't need any help in nursing those babies. And, and we're supposed to suck all the consolation that we can get out of the glory of the New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are part of a new kingdom. Jesus sits on the throne of it. He died for us. He is our Lord and Savior as our president's Easter greeting to the nation included. And we should rejoice and be glad in it. Behold me. Behold me. He came to us Gentiles and he's made us the principal part of his kingdom for the last 2,000 years. Let's make it great in Greenville. And let's love his son, and let's love each other. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.